WBZ original. My son made the Today Show with a drawing he found of a dog wearing pants. And he turned it into, what's the right if a dog wore pants? Oh, now nice. would the, remember? Yeah. That, was dog wearing pants. that was my son, wow. Jack. that was a big meme. That was big. Would it be how far up they would wear the pants? Would, would the, the pants, pants be just on the hind paws? Yeah, I think so. Or, or on all four Oh, paws? I see, no, not would, like that. Yeah. No, I would agree, <laughs> no, no. On a sunny spring-like day, welcome into Studio BZ, everybody. We are still Alston's number one podcast. It is episode 12 of season three. This isn't spring, (laughs) Come on, this is March. And John, we have David Wade with us. He's finally coming to the podcast. Hi, David. What is is a podcast? I've never heard of such a thing. I thought Liam was looking especially good today. (laughs) (laughs) Liam is off somewhere, you know, fuming about something. Yeah. Crafting his latest monologue. At last check, he's on vacation, and I kid Mm -hmm. you not, on Twitter, arguing about which Sesame Street character would be best on an island. I did see that. This is what he's doing on vacation. And I thought, what's he doing? Wow. Doesn't he go on vacation? Well, you know, kids are like, Daddy, what about (laughs) us? Hey, here's what's coming up in this week's okay. show. This was pretty funny. Uh, another rant of Liam's. Magic Mike the Musical is debuting at Boston's historic Colonial Theater. This is an out-of-town tryout, a serious Broadway musical before it goes to New York. And we spoke with the theater spokesman, Robert Jones, who defends the show's ageist casting, which really threw Liam into a tizzy because he secretly wants to audition. I'm with Liam on this. Just because I'm well over 50. <laughs> okay, I'm over 60. Why should the, the public be deprived of seeing yeah. me in my tidy whitey? No dad bod allowed. They already the had that. It was called the full Monty. You had your chance. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, is there anyone in Massachusetts who isn't running for president? I think is the way we ought to phrase it. We sure do have enough uh, uh, real candidates and wannabe candidates running around. Politico's Bill Share helps me handicap how they're doing and do any of them have a chance going forward. And robotic dating. Not what it sounds like. <laughs> Boston-made dating app Icebreaker. We're going to have more on that as well. We talked to the creator uh, for the 8 o'clock news. Aren't you so relieved you don't have to date anymore? I read <laughs> people's stories uh. of these dating apps and you know, being swiped right. Swiped right yes, is good. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, it's so. it's. Oh, it sounds like a night, like a circle of hell. Dante couldn't have invented. I that. was married at twenty three. Me too. And this was a major reason why. <laughs> I mean, I lied, Dort. I knew I'd found my soulmate, but uh, the the idea of many more years of dating oh, was a non-starter. The thought of it. You might have heard that Magic Mike the Musical is coming to Boston. The Broadway-bound show will premiere this fall at Emerson Colonial Theater. They have announced a casting call for the show, seeking men to audition. And I was reading through the press release, and Paula can attest I was rightfully outraged (laughs) when I got to this part of the press release. Quote, candidates must be men between the ages of 18 to 30 and in excellent physical shape. And I thought, well, that seems very specific Mm -hmm. and very restrictive. Mm -hmm. And so to defend this and to tell us about the musical is Robert Jones with the Emerson Colonial Theater. Robert, thank you for joining us, I guess. Thank you for having me. So let's get right to this controversy that I have created. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. This age range, 
Matthew McConaughey in Magic Mike the Movie was 42 when they filmed. Well, Liam has done his research. I did. I have, my, I have receipts here for you, Robert. Channing Tatum, the breakout star of the film, was 31 when the movie came out. They would not have even fallen into this age range that has been set. So defend yourself and this range. You are correct. So I, 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 I am at the mercy of the creators of this brand new musical. Um, they have created the magic mic that is different than the, the, the film in that it actually tells the story leading up to the first Magic Mike ah. musical. So the way that the story is going to play out is that he is a college student turned male entertainer. Therein lies the problem. Okay, but, but tell true. this to Arthur Fonzarelli, who played, you know, Henry Winkler played Henry Arthur Winkler. Fonzarelli yes. when he was like 38. He was playing the high school Fonz <laughs> and did a great job, right? And uh, those kids from Glee were like 56, true. I think, by the time they <laughs> stopped filming that 16-year-olds. Uh, Liam, sometimes we must accept that not all opportunities are open to us. Well, you know, we're going for authenticity. I I think that's the the perspective of the production. And that that is not to say that if you are so inclined, Liam, that you really feel that this is the role for you or there's a role for you in the show, Uh I will gladly tell the producer. You know what's happening here, Robert. You, you, You can see what's happening is that Liam is trying to set up a situation here where he will ultimately be mailing the creators an audition tape. I, uh-huh. I think this is what he's trying to establish his yeah. sort of uh, bona fide so that he can tape something maybe in yeah. our studio. Well, I will take with it to my shirt off. I will take it to my grave denying that that's the case. <laughs> but I will say for all you know, you're missing out on a triple threat. There's a friend of mine who can dance and sing and can act uh-huh. and is give or take 35 yep. years old. Yep. And yep. he told me, this is my friend, not yes. me, told A me friend. that he was very offended uh, by this <laughs> age limit and that it's making him feel kind of old and insecure. You know, uh, that is not the intention. And I can apologize on behalf of the production. That is, that is, <laughs> that was certainly, we don't want to make anybody feel less than. No, um, no one over 30 you know. is being blocked out. Right. Well, let me let me go this route with you. How open would you be to the idea of a magic mic model with dad bod? You know, maybe he comes out. <laughs> maybe he and, takes care of toddlers. Yeah, maybe in the he morning. comes out. He has Crocs and sweatpants on, <laughs> and is doing a little well, show. Or maybe you, he's like a plumber I, from Selfie, it, a forty-five-year-old. Exactly. Plumber. I mean, you know, I, I I think that's a different way of looking at it. You know, <laughs> it's a different story, maybe. Yeah, um, true. Maybe a completely you know. different musical. Like mm. like there's Spamilton to Hamilton. Yeah. I think you need to create um, not so magical, Mike. And so magical, and have, and have uh, you know baby bottles and yeah. diaper changing tables. Because my understanding uh, is, dad bod like. is really in right now. Women are into uh, dad bod. Audience for everything, One and as, as you know, I have a coworker that likes to say, "Don't yuck my yum." It's true. So it's something. true. And representation matters. Yeah. Well, anyway, I would so just say, uh, I would, I would ask the creators to use their imaginations um, and, uh, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe rethink this. We'll, we'll see. Hey, can like I bring a, Let me ask you this, yes. Liam. It, it, it is your video, I mean, I should say your friend's video. Yeah. Is it already ready to go to send in already or is it something that is, uh, is, is to be completed? Uh, that would, it, it has not been filmed yet. Um, it requires uh-huh. body oil. 
lighting. Right. <laughs> Lots of body uh, roll. No shirt. Right. Um, a stage with the kind of magic mic. Um, what is that called? That like tinsel hanging yeah. in the background. Right. Some sort of maybe tinsel a cowboy curtains. hat, a la Matthew McConaughey. That'd be yeah. Good. Yeah. Really setting the scene we'll there. Work yeah. it. We'll work on it. We're <laughs> setting the scene. All <laughs> but right, then, let's talk about But then the, a toddler attached to your hip. Let's talk about the show itself. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, so what does it mean to have this show premiering here in Boston? Because Paula has always talked about, she actually used to have basically your job, Robert. Well. Is that right? Robert, here's the thing. In, my, in a previous life, in a previous, the original colonial theater, I worked uh, once upon a time for the Broadway producer who controlled the Colonial and the Wilbur and the Charles Playhouse. And we did the local advertising and uh, public relations for all the national tours that came through Boston. This was my just, you know, right out of college, first job. And uh, he's a man named John Platt. You might have heard of him. I really well, He's yeah. produced a few musicals called Wicked and Book of Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> so he went on Paula, to Paula great was success. instrumental in the creation well, I mean, of those shows. I, I would hope that in some footnote to right. Broadway history, yeah. my little name would be mentioned. But You, you were the muse. It, I was the muse. But uh, it should be said that inside the walls of the Colonial Theater uh, took place arguably – the most important moment in Broadway musical history, the creation of the out-of-town tryout of Oklahoma, mm. right? That's right. What That's it was right. called, and does anyone know? Great quiz Boston, question. What was it called? It was called? called Away We Go. Like <gasps> Away oh, We go. go. Robert had That's that right, right on the... Robert, you were Paula's you kind of knew. guy. You knew. So what does it mean to have this show premiering here in Boston? It's kind of getting back to that, that those roots uh, in Boston of trying out plays here and, mm. and moving them onto Broadway. You know, I to to just to jump off what Paula was saying, the colonial over the past, it's it just turned 118 years mm. old in December. Mm. And for the better part of the century, uh, it was known as the birthplace of great musical theater. So away we go, which was Oklahoma, which, by the way, is celebrating its 76th anniversary this week. Um, Carousel, Follies, A Little Night Music, mm-hmm. Grand Hotel, La Caja Faux, they all were written and did their out-of-town tryouts here at the Colonial. So we say at the Colonial that it's the birthplace of great musical theater. Well, you know, that's the thing. Boston audiences have always been known to be very discerning. There is a very interesting collection of people, of course, so many universities uh, in the Boston area. And um, so pre-Broadway tryouts always could say they had a consistently highly critical audience that wasn't just impressed with star power. Uh, that right. would really analyze a show. Of course, Elliot, uh, Elliot Norton, the famous drama critic right. of Boston, would give notes to Rodgers and Hammerstein or whoever were creating a show, and then they would go on to New York. And uh, the out-of-town Boston tryout really helped a lot of creators and writers um, uh, produce great shows. I was sitting here kind of chuckling, thinking, can you imagine Rogers and Hammerstein picturing a show like Magic Mike someday being on the same <laughs> stage? But uh, one of the great stories about The Colonial is um, when Bob Fosse was doing the out-of-town tryout of Danson in 1978, he jumped up on this marble-topped table that is in the entry hall there uh, to, de- to demonstrate a, a dance move for one of the dancers and with his tap shoe chipped the marble. There's a mm. chunk. So go look, Robert, at the at the marble table down there in the ladies' lounge and see uh, yeah. if you can find the it, chip in the marble. And that's from Bob Fosse. 
we call that his autograph. That's yeah, right. it's still it's here. It is, it is the heaviest piece of furniture I think I've ever encountered in my life. <laughs> we actually, um, in the in a renovation, we wanted to make sure that that table was a focal point because there is that legend behind it. Yep. And actually, that room, which was once the ladies' lounge, we've we've sealed off the entryway so that more people can actually experience that room. Excellent. There's a bar in there and things, and and that's actually the room where uh, lots of musicals, you know, after the end of the performance, people would go in there, the creative team would shut the door and work into the night. So right. the musicals were actually written in that room. Very important. Uh, where that table is. And so. and it should be stated, that table is back in its rightful place because of John Platt. At one yeah, point true. in the 70s or 80s, another theater group bought the Colonial Theater and that table was moved to a theater on in New York, a Broadway theater, and he knew hmm. that it had been specifically designed to go underneath the ceiling painting, which is an oval shape, and he made sure he got that table back and returned it to the Colonial Theater. So the people of New England owe him a debt for yeah, that. And by the way, Robert, the Emerson Colonial Theater almost ceased to exist just a couple of years ago. That is true. Its fate was a little undetermined, so... When Emerson did decide to keep it as a as a functioning theater, uh, they put a bid out, and we're very fortunate that ATG Ambassador Theater Group was was chosen to operate it for Emerson. Excellent. Tell us just a little bit about the show, Magic Mike the Musical, because you were saying that now we're going back to high it's school. A prequel. It's a fresh take on the story that I think everybody knows. Like we said, we're using that word prequel. Um, and, and I think to your point about Rodgers and Hammerstein looking at a show like Magic Mike. It's being created by a first-class mm. creative team. So Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, who's having this moment, um, he writes the TV show Riverdale mm-hmm. and also The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina that's on Netflix. Um, so if you're familiar with those shows, that's sort of an interesting... You can tell how he's going to look at these characters that way. But also, Pulitzer Prize winners Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkie, who many people know wrote Next to Normal, are writing the score... So you put those ingredients together with the vibrant director with Trip Coleman and and mm. a, they're still writing it. They're they're developing it. We're about what is it, eight months away from the start, mm. starting mm-hmm. November thirtieth. And it's gonna run here for five weeks. And what, and what are the dates? Uh, November thirtieth through uh, January fifth. Excellent. And, and, and maybe ah, on to Broadway. Maybe on to Broadway. How many people, not Liam, might you cast <laughs> in the local area? <laughs> You know, it's it's a national search. I mean, I, I frankly probably an international search. So I, I don't know how many roles the production's actually looking for. Um, but also, as these things go, is that you you turn in your video, and if you're called now, that's great. But these casting directors, they have large files. So who knows if Magic Mike has a very long life, which I certainly <gasps> think it will, and I hope it's it does. True. Who knows where this could lead, right? Who knows, Liam? And mm-hmm. no, you know, you can't send your... Um, we just saw what happened with the college admissions cheating scandal. Don't send your tape in and lie about your no, age. No, I was planning on Photoshopping myself You're... under a much, much better looking body. <laughs> um, seeing where things take that me. Road. You never know. Well, best of luck with the uh, the new... Management of the Emerson Colonial Theater, such an important part of Broadway history and Boston theater history. And uh, this is great that new, young, fun shows are being developed out of town and here, and then they'll end up on Broadway. I love it. And Paul and I, we'll go see it. We, we will. We'll see this in the fall. We absolutely will. And we'll have some fun, and I'll, I'll, boo, <laughs> is... I'll boo at the people who aren't me. <laughs> this uh... is us asking for house seats in an elaborate fashion. <laughs> yes, <laughs> pretty much. Robert Jones, you've been such a good sport. Thank you for uh, chatting with us. 
Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. The city is for some glamorous, stimulating. Well, as you know, you can't have a presidential race without at least a few candidates from Massachusetts because the lower 49 states are eagerly awaiting their marching orders from us at all times, right? Well, the incredible expanding field of candidates for president already has two Massachusetts entries, Senator Elizabeth Warren and former Governor Bill Weld, a third Congressman Seth Moulton continues to sniff around a run. Let's take a closer look at them and other aspects of the presidential race with one of my favorite political analysts, Bill Scher of Northampton. He's a contributing editor to Politico magazine and a contributor also to Real Clear Politics. Bill, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Great to talk to you again. So, um, the other night on CNN, it was Elizabeth Warren's term to, uh, turn to have one of those town halls, which uh, appear to be more like pep rallies than actual town halls, but so be it. And she was in full policy wonk mode, uh, making some news by advocating for the abolition of the Electoral College uh, and so forth. Between her branding as the policy wonk of the field, and some of the other things she's been doing, eschewing big dollar donations, staying after every public appearance to take pictures with everyone who shows up. Uh, this is, and I don't say this derogatorily, but it's more inquiringly, this is a, a, a gimmicky candidacy so far, for better or worse, Bill. Well, I, I would push back on that a little bit. I, I think her, I would not call her policy sweet, uh, gimmicky. Right. I, I, I might say pandering on, on the Electoral College might be more gimmicky, but things that she has to say about a wealth tax or housing policy or breaking up big tech, uh, agree or disagree, I think they're real policy. Right. Agreed. Uh, uh, and, you know, I think she is developing a reputation of being the most substantive candidate in the field, the, the person trying the hardest to have a distinctive set of signature policies. Uh, which then raises the question, is is that actually what it takes to win the presidential nomination? Yeah, exactly. What do you think? Is that smart branding? Well, it, it's 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 better than not doing it, but <laughs> it, it might be necessary but not sufficient. You, she still has these big obstacles to overcome. The question whether she can win, I think, hovers over her in a, in a, in a huge way. Uh, and because she got tangled up in all the Native American business. She took Trump's bait. It didn't work out for her well. Uh, and so she has she lost a image of the consummate fighter. You know, people sort of pined for her in 2016 thinking, man, I'd love to see Elizabeth Warren, you know, stick it to Donald Trump. Man, she really, she could, I've seen her take apart a Wall Street banker at the at a congressional hearing. I want to see her do that to Trump. Yeah. And then she essentially loses the fight over her Native American heritage to Trump in a political, in a, in a crude political analysis. And so she has yet to regain the perception that she could win a tangle with him. Uh, and so just, just having the set of policies isn't enough to address that question. I've heard smart people suggest that New Hampshire is going to be her Waterloo. Either she wins or or finishes strongly there or it's over. Do you buy that? It's a neighboring state. Yeah. You know, uh, so if, you, if you're from New England and you can't win New England, it raises the question where can you win? Uh, it is a very... 
liberal Democratic electorate there. Uh, but obviously there's a huge problem for her in New Hampshire, and his name is Bernie Sanders, who's also from New England, also from a neighboring state, and every poll shows has the leg up on her. And, and this is – I think the her hope going into this was that she could be the more electable Bernie Sanders. And she has lost that electability argument, at least in the first round of this process. Uh, and so and you can't get more to the left than Bernie on a lot of these issues. So she's not poaching his voters away and has yet to develop her own distinctive base that can match up with him in a place like New Hampshire. I would offer one other quick reason why New Hampshire is someplace she should do well, and it's going to be problematic if she doesn't, uh, that uh, unlike Bernie, she's a woman. And New Hampshire has a well-established tradition of liking and electing female politicians. Well, this the whole the gender question is, I think, is going to get more and more pronounced over the course of this process. Um, we have uh, five candidates who are women, six of you can't, Marianne Williamson. Uh, and uh, yet the top people in the polls have been Biden and Bernie. And you know, Biden's not quite in yet, but it seems like he's headed that way. Uh, and we'll see if Beto can get into the top tier. He's certainly in the top tier on the money chase from the from the first day reporting. Yeah, uh, the the polls are not there yet, but it's it's very early for him. We'll see if he gets a real bump when we look at polls next week. And if he does, then you're gonna have three guys in the top tier uh, who are white men, with Kamala being the one woman who is kind of hanging around double digits, around ten percent, and worn a little bit. Uh, under her. Uh, so you may get this real frustration. Wait a second. I thought we were doing something different here, Democrats. I thought we were not going to do another old white guy. Um, and will the electorate then say, okay, if we're not going to have that, can we get behind one woman to ensure this doesn't happen? Mm. Or is it going to remain fractured among several? I got to tell you, with regard to the uh, admittedly impressive early fundraising by Sanders and O'Rourke, Ever since Ariana Huffington's husband, what was his name again, lost— Michael. Yeah, right. He ran for governor of California and spent an astonishing amount of his own money. I I think it might have been somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 million and still got his butt handed to him. Ever ever since then, and with other evidence, too— I've tended to downplay. Obviously, you've got to have table stakes, particularly with Super Tuesday looming off in the distance. But uh, I've I've tended to sort of uh, roll my eyes when uh, the media puts a lot of emphasis on fundraising in this race. Am I missing it? Well, I think there's a difference between uh, a candidate who is a self-funder, right, which I believe Huffington was. Right. And you're sitting on your own war, your, your your own bank account, you write yourself a check, and you think you're going to buy an election. Those candidacies often fail uh, because you know, m- money has its uh, value in politics, no doubt. But uh, when you earn a dollar through fundraising, you're also earning a vote. You're earning a, a dedicated supporter. And what what Bernie and uh, Beto are bringing to the race are pre-made small donor armies that they've, in Bernie's case, nurtured over a few years. In Beto's case, the result of his Senate race last year. Uh, and it's given them 
it, it seems, a head start. Well, look, one candidate who certainly uh, doesn't have big money from the get-go, but is second to no one when it comes to ambition and some would say hubris, is our very own Congressman Seth Moulton, fresh off his humiliation at the hands of Nancy Pelosi in the speakership insurrection, uh, is uh, repeatedly dropping these large uh, farm-sized hints uh, uh, that he wants to get in and run. What do you make of this? I think it's very strange. As we as we talked uh, when I was on your podcast before, uh, I was not impressed by Moulton's attempt to dislodge Nancy Pelosi from the speakership. Right. Uh, I think it was a massive humiliation. Uh, it should have been a wake-up call. They didn't have his finger on the pulse of the, the Democratic caucus, the Democratic electorate. Um, and I'm, I, I hesitate to be a mind reader here, but it, it seems to me that he is really enamored with the notion that he is uh, a political outsider. He's not going to do what the establishment tells him to do. Uh, and, and I don't think he wants to be a lifer in Congress. I don't think he sees himself as someone who's, who becomes a, a, a committee chair someday. So I don't think it bothers him to you know go president or bust, even though from a detached standpoint, where's the opening? Where's the lane? What, where, where Where's the... Well, what in this field is lacking that you bring that isn't already there? I mean, there, there are already people who are young. There are already people who have military experience. There are already people who say they are poised against the Democratic establishment. Uh, so it's, there's really nothing that he brings to the table that's unique. But he might just say, you know what? I don't want to be in Congress for my whole life. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, I mean, there's other options. Uh, Ed Markey is up for re-election next year. He's possibly ripe for a primary challenge. And uh, and in uh, three years, there's uh, going to be an open or p- potentially going to be an open gubernatorial race in Massachusetts. What is it about these guys, and I guess there are some women out there who might fit the bill, who think they can go from nobody to president? <laughs> well, the, the Democratic Party's got a lot of those, right? Yeah. Moulton's not the only one. No, he isn't. Uh, and and, and there's, a, there's several people, people like John Hickenlooper, former governor of Colorado, uh, Beto, who was probably pretty poised to be the nominee for Senate if he ran against John Cornyn, yeah. uh, Steve Bullock in Montana, uh, Schumer can't seem to recruit him to run for Senate. He might run for president also. Uh, there's lots of folks who are saying to themselves, hey, if Donald Trump can do it, why can't I? The rule, The old rules don't apply. This is the big job, and uh, if you, you can show me I have some possible path to get there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to take it. Uh, Bill, uh, and to our, our listeners, don't send me white-hot Twitter comments based on what I'm about to say. <laughs> but uh, for those of us who remember Bobby Kennedy, watching Beto O'Rourke, uh, with all due respect to his impressive run against Cruz, with all due respect to his proven ability to raise money, it just looks like a sort of a third-rate Bobby Kennedy impersonation. What am I missing? Well, I, I'm I'm on record as a as a as a Beto skeptic. I, I wrote a piece in November uh, saying that the premise that he ran an exceptional campaign in Texas, therefore it, he can upscale this at the presidential level, uh, is fundamentally flawed. Mm -hmm. Uh, he, um, he definitely ran, uh, the best campaign in, in Texas history since, you know, say, you know, Ann Richards, but Democrats across the country 
ran well. They ran well, particularly in urban and suburban areas. Uh, and there, and, and there has been a demographic shift in those urban suburban areas towards the Democrats coast to coast. Uh, Kirsten Cinema in Arizona, uh, she improved on Hillary's performance just as much as Beto did in Texas. Mm -hmm. But she ran a very centrist campaign, a, very, a, a pretty low-key campaign. It was not fueled by a nationwide small donor army. Uh, the only difference is that she won and he didn't. Uh, and when you talk about, well, Beto helped people down ballot, well, there were two Texas races that flipped the Democrats for the U.S. House in urban suburban districts, very similar to the kinds of districts that Democrats won all across the country in states that did not have a great ticket topper like a Beto, like uh, Glenda Hoare in Oklahoma or Joe Cunningham in South Carolina. Uh, so it, it's much more the case that Beto did well in Texas because of Texas, because of how Texas is changing and becoming more blue because of its growing uh, urban suburban areas than is about Beto himself as a person. And yet the, the hype around him is such that he concluded, I'm not going to stay in Texas and benefit from the trend here and get myself into the Senate in 2020. I'm just like special about me. And therefore, I'm going to do what I did and try to do it on a nationwide scale, which I think is potentially uh, a poor choice for him. Yeah. Well, we'll find out pretty quickly, I think. Um, well, Bill, can we put a period on it by agreeing on one thing? It's not in the best interests of the Democratic Party to have the presidential race become in any way a referendum on how people around the country feel about Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you know, maybe this is 1980. Maybe it's Massachusetts miracle all over again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think between the success of our sports teams, the obnoxiousness of our bragging and our track record of political nominees, presidential nominees from here, maybe it's best that another state have the limelight. That's, that probably is what's going to happen, but you never know. Bill Scher of Northampton, contributing editor to Politico Magazine. His analysis of this race is must-reading. And Bill, as always, thanks for joining us here on Studio BZ. We really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Creativity combined with innovations in technology. How would you like artificial intelligence to help you set up your next online dating profile? This is the idea behind Icebreaker, a dating app that was built here in Massachusetts. It just launched in Boston on Valentine's Day. And joining us tonight is Chrissy Delore. She is the content strategy manager at Icebreaker. Basically, you're a matchmaker. Basically. Yeah, that's yeah. what you do. Question number one for you. When people <laughs> sign up for Icebreaker, they're, they're welcomed by this robot wingman named yes. Hootie. Hootie, yes. All kinds of Hootie and the Blowfish puns that I'm going to throw yes. at you here. Yes. Um, no. What What does Hootie do? Yeah. So Hootie basically welcomes you to the app. He kind of gets you situated and basically walks you through setting up a profile. Um, unlike other dating apps, which kind of let you fend for themselves, mm. um, Hootie basically tells you, um, you know, these are the types of profile photos you should be uploading. Maybe think about a headshot. Mm -hmm. um, maybe don't put people, other people, in your profile. Um, and also, too, when it comes to your profile, um, things to talk about as well. So essentially, you've got a dating coach on demand. Yes. Sort of in Hootie. Yeah. Artificial intelligence is good for this. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that you stress at Icebreaker is that people should put full body images, not just the face. Why? A hundred percent. So many times we've heard stories from um, former clients that, you know, clients that we, me and the 
co-founder Kevin have worked with in the past mm-hmm. where they'll feel like they were catfished by people. Um, women especially are very good at taking selfies at the right angle. Um, you know, just <laughs> if I'm going to be totally <laughs> honest Still. with you. And it's really important for people to see the whole package. Um, you're eventually going to meet someone in person and, you know, you're going to see the whole body. You're, you're never going to meet just the mm-hmm. face on a date. Right. And in addition to the picture, who do you helps match you with people. It uses artificial intelligence to do that as well. So what what do you think makes a good match? And what does who do you think makes a good match? Sure. Um, Really, from um, the match perspective, it starts with a profile and making sure that you have actionable items that matches can talk to you about. So whether Mm -hmm. you really like to travel um, or super into working out, for example, I love yoga. I also teach yoga sculpt on on the side. Mm -hmm. Um, As long as you have stuff that people can actually message you about, um, that really shows where commonalities are and um, can lead to that conversation that right yeah and it also recommends conversation starters yes exactly right? and that's where the icebreaker comes in what's an example of one of those yeah so for example um what's an ideal first date for you so a coffee mm-hmm. shop a dive bar you know maybe a movie a sporting event and mm-hmm. you pick your answer and you have to explain why um mm-hmm. and that gives your you know whoever's looking at your profile a little bit more insight into why you're choosing that answer versus just like oh this person like that di- likes dives bars but like right. why yeah your background is as a dating coach, and yes. so we want to get a sense of how this would work sure. in real life on Icebreaker. I'm married. I'm married. I'm going to just <laughs> put that right up front. This is fake. Not available. <laughs> I do not have a dating just profile. Just an example. <laughs> I do not have a dating profile, but if I did, I would need you to fix it because 100%. I was never very good at this to begin with. So here it is. Yeah. Uh, first off, a uh, great photo. Uh, <laughs> I have my likes here, spending time with my kids, news, of course, sports. I should add on here puns. Uh, dislikes, mushrooms, kale, bare feet, and movies with sad endings, all deal breakers for me. Okay. So you're looking at this profile. Yeah. What would what you change? What would you change? Okay, first <laughs> of all, uh, yeah, it's definitely, while I will say that I love that your profile shows off your personality, yeah. um, you're wearing sunglasses so people right. cannot see your face. Right. Um, and my mustache. And your mustache. That mustache, yeah. by the way, yeah. people won't believe it, that's real. It, right. And, I mean, and I it would hope be, it would not. And it should be a, be a, a full-body shot. Right. Well, we can, yeah. Calm down, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This also, too, says. like, dislikes, um, it's it's great to show what you're interested in, but dislikes also, too, do bring up a negative connotation. Yeah. Mm. Um, and also, too, mentioning um, bare feet. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, by the way. Maybe just leave that off the profile. Should, should perhaps your profile leave off a little asterisk with the absolute... <laughs> monologue tirade he yeah. could go on about barefoot. Yeah, and yeah. So all of those yeah. things really actually All those it. things. So which leads us to our next question. What sure. is the most common mistake people make on oh, dating most apps? Most common mistake. Or online um, dating. On there's a ton. There, there's a lot. Um, but I would definitely say going along with that negativity vibe, a yeah. lot of times we will see other former clients or, you know, even now just pe- be like people, you know, I don't want drama. I don't need negativity in my life. But you're talking about it in mm. your online dating profile or like you must be five, you know, like six foot, you know, and that's right. it. Oh, oh, saying yeah, making you, a like, demand. Very a demand on like, yeah, like height yeah. and stuff like that. Being very kind of picky mm. right from the get-go. And it, it's a huge turnoff. Political affiliations are big. Hmm. Yes. Is moment. that something people should avoid? Or you think put it put it right in there if, if it's a deal breaker If for it's you? a deal breaker for you, yes. If it's something mm. that you really just can't get oh, around gosh. considering where we're at right now and you know our political mm-hmm. climate that's totally fine however if you're you know just if it's not that important to you um why not 
you know, you can totally leave it off see and save it for save it for um, you know first or second date. So the app is now available <laughs> yeah. in Boston in as Boston. of Valentine's Day. Yes. It is called Icebreaker, and it's I C E B R K R. Yes. So go download it. Yeah. Have fun. Awesome. Chrissy Delora, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The unexpected, not knowing what's going to happen—that's uh, the problem. Uh, last year, we lost our video. All right, guys, you remember Seinfeld, and he would say. What's the deal with airplane peanuts? Well, today's topic, what's the deal with people reclining on airplanes? There was this article that was being shared on Twitter that Liam got involved with last night, and then I did as well, about whether it's okay to recline on an airplane. This long article, which I think took 10 IQ points off my already low number, (laughs) made the point that you're a monster if you recline your seat on an airplane, this which... is a new phenomenon, isn't it? It's insane. <laughs> well, look, maybe it has something to do with the fact that they're jamming those seats in closer yeah. than ever on many, if not all, of the airlines. And I can certainly understand... I, I don't appreciate it when someone suddenly rockets their sure, seat back. Sure. There goes your yeah. ginger ale into your lap. There go your knees. But if you're not supposed to use the recline option, why do we even why have is it? it there? Exactly. I know. And my Catholic guilt has made me in the last couple of years now, because of this, the button was always there. I always reclined because it's not very comfortable to sit bolt right. upright for an entire flight. And now I feel guilty doing it. I have a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, this idea that you're a monster if you do it in the writer's eyes is sort of symbolic of something we have going on in our society nowadays, which is you get the retweets, you get the clicks, you get the likes when you are over the top yeah. in your take. The more extreme. In your the hotter hot the take, take the right? Yeah. So you're a monster if you recline because this person knows that if they tweet out, hey, sometimes it's okay to recline, sometimes it's not, right. that no one's going to click. That's right? too adult. So that's my first thought, okay? But let's go along with the idea for a moment that someone thinks you're a monster if you recline. Here's problem number one. Everyone has the option of reclining. So if I recline and then you recline, we're back to square one. You haven't lost any space. It's like dominoes. Right? It's true. I I guess it's really hard for extremely tall men when someone in front of them reclines. It must be uncomfortable for them. I don't know. Because it's (laughs) extremely hard, like I was Sunday night at a concert I went to, To be stuck behind an extremely tall man in the seat in front of you. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But he has a right to be tall. Yeah, there's nothing right? you can do about that. There's nothing I can do about it. So we agreed on the bare feet thing. You are a monster if you ever bare your feet on public transportation. Yes. That's disgusting. That is yes disgusting. Yes and no. And this is where I, I say no. Yes, if you're a man, I don't want to see your feet. Right. Okay? That's sexist. I know, but no. I'm going to say it. But it's okay But there are girls. women who are barely wearing anything on their well, feet. They call sandals. them flip-flops. They call them yeah. sandals. And their feet can be just as snaggly. <laughs> and they have them out on the airplane. So I, guess. I don't know why What's that's Sauce passing. for the goose. Sauce yes. for the gander yeah. kind right. of thing. The guy in his boxers, I really do draw the line Well, there. picking your feet oh, is never acceptable. Yeah. No. I think in public or private. People That's true. That's have... something you lock yourself in your in your bathroom yeah, for. Yeah, there's public and private, yeah. right? Yeah. When it comes to the airplane and when it comes to reclining, I think that there are worse people on an airplane, okay? I have three worse people on an airplane than Mr. Reclines a lot, okay? okay? There is, number one, Mr. Slob. And I'm going to use Mr. on all of this because yeah. I don't want to upset anyone, Man-spreading, okay? you mean? 
Uh, no, Mr. Slob, you come on the airplane and you sweatpants and oh, yeah. T-shirt that's hanging. And every time you put something in the a compartment above, your shirt is up and I can see all kinds of skin. <laughs> I don't want to see your abdomen. Here's another one. Uh, obviously, you know, given the fact that the airlines mostly don't serve you any food anymore other, other than those peanuts. And what's the deal with those what's peanuts? What's the deal? <laughs> uh, people bring food on. I've done it myself. Yeah. However, certain foods, ixnay. Yeah. Sushi. Tuna melt. Uh, uh, mussels. Yeah. Fish. You know, fish of any yeah. kind. Yeah, it's true. Absolutely Skip the legal not. seafood. Uh, Who's bringing line? seafood on an airplane? Oh, you stop are. it legal. Really? You, know, you can smell them on. coming, and you, I just start looking at the empty seat next to me and looking at them, and oh. you know where they're headed. Yeah, odors are awful. Here's a third horrible person. My young daughter was on a long flight recently. People who can't pick up on the social cues of a plane. Oh, yeah. Once the lights are dimmed. Yeah. It's time for us all to agree not to talk, right? So she was trying to sleep on a long, long flight, and an older man kept poking her in the shoulder and trying to engage her yeah. in conversation for a, like, seven-hour flight. And she finally had to take her earphones out and say, I'm trying to sleep here. Well, I have to say, out of all the things that can and are can be and are annoying on an airplane, to me, nothing beats the scene once the airplane taxis to a halt, <laughs> where knowing damn well that it's going to be f- at least 15 minutes before anyone's going to be able to exit, at least two-thirds of the passengers up. leap to their <laughs> yep. feet, and lean rip into the open aisle. the bins, haul down their 1,700-ton carry-on bags, plop them down if, unless you're quick, clipping your elbow or knee in the process, and then stand there, and I've noticed this lately, glowering at those of us who've chosen, like people with triple-digit IQs, to remain in our seats (laughs) until until such time as it's time to get up and leave. Like we're doing something offensive or we're showing them up. It's true. And I will say, as a, I'm, I'm a pretty strong person, but as a woman, you know, we don't have as much upper body strength. It is amazing as people, you know, start to quickly then deplane, you yeah. know, as everybody works down the aisle. Right. And the people behind you surging forward who won't give you time to, to reach up and yeah. get your bag out of the overhead bin and to get in the aisle and get out. It's so well, unbelievable. The situations <laughs> like that are where the ability to pass gas at will <laughs> really comes in handy. All right. You can clear out a oh, buffer. Oh, here we go. You just this, teed me up for... This is a David Wade perennial subject. The airline industry's <laughs> worst person, Sir Tootsalot. Oh, dear. The person who thinks... Now they're on an airplane. Yeah. It's almost like sending an angry message on Twitter. You, you do so anonymously. Yeah. People are on an airplane yeah. anonymously just farting away <laughs> as if all of a sudden they have a license to toot. Because, because nobody knows where it's coming from. It could be that guy. It could be that woman. It could be anywhere. You're inside a closed metal right. capsule right. with lousy air quality to begin with. Right. Pressurized and you're just cap- letting them fly. And I get it. You have a sour tummy. You're nervous because you've been reading about Boeing in the newspaper. You can't but get don't up. don't just let your nervousness <laughs> expound throughout the airplane. Well, I mean, you realize many of these same people believe that if they don't let it rip, it'll build up and cause a tremendous explosion at some point. Well, 
That's their issue. Yeah. Don't make it my issue. Yeah. Don't no, make it you. my issue. And of course, you're not allowed to light a match to take care exactly. of the problem. That's the main. Well, that's pretty good, but I can top that for really? worst uh, onboard behavior. I've only right. heard and about this happening one. once. Well, I don't know if you Go can ahead. top this, Paula. My son and daughter-in-law were on a just a short flight between Boston and Washington. I won't mention the airline, although the airline did respond when they complained about this. And my daughter-in-law was feeling a little queasy. Oh, God. <laughs> and she reached for the, you know, the oh, bag. Yeah. Oh, boy. And someone had used it already. Oh, and put it back. And put it back, and it had not been bust. Oh, so dear. they oh. got home, and they were, first of all, they so called me up. So did she get sick again into the same No, bag. but it was a close call. <laughs> oh. So they got home, and my son decided, I can't let this just go, and he called up the airline, and he described the situation of the customer service rep, and there's silence on the phone. And then the woman says, Fatty is disgusting. <laughs> she, uh, she was nauseated. And they uh, they comped him a pair of tickets. Oh, Good nice. For them. Yeah. Yeah. Good for that. Well, they got to be right on that. Right, They've so got to be cleaning those things. The only person that I will say is worst, I have not experienced it myself, but if you Google articles, the airplane molesters are out there oh, yeah. who feel up female passengers while they are sleeping. Wow. Holly so just took it up like 15 is, notches. That is a I, low blow. Suddenly, the, so suddenly the guy who's farting doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> not the brightest criminals, by Honestly, the way. Honestly, I know. Because your, your, your escape routes are limited on, a, on, a, on <laughs> an airplane true. in flight. This is true. One of my parents' best stories of all time in a very different era. I think it was like the late 60s or early 70s. They were flying out of Boston on some airline to Bermuda for a medical meeting, you know, plane full of doctors. Whoever loaded the food thing into the back of the plane didn't shut the door the whole way. So as soon as the plane got up to 10,000 feet and was climbing, the oxygen masks came down. Oh, People man. were clutching their chests. But the best part was in an era when the flight attendants were not trained like they are now. Yeah. They were kind of glorified waitresses in those days in the sky. The, the stewardess went screaming, crying up the center aisle, banging on the pilot's door, hysterical, because she didn't know what to do. Oh, My father is resuscitating people in the Whoa. aisle, so the pilot had to turn the plane back around, oh. land back in Boston. He got a letter a couple of weeks later, and also consider the time, that every single human being who had touched that flight had been fired. Wow. That it was such a horrific, egregious, yeah. you know, Good. Uh, example of bad airline industry behavior. I don't know that that would happen today. No. No. <laughs> Hopefully no one would forget to shut the door when they loaded in the food. Wow. But uh, it was bad. I have one more airplane story, and perhaps this makes me the worst passenger of all time. <laughs> Years ago, I was flying back from London. Uh, I was actually there on a story. I was by myself. And I was really tired, and I'm sitting in the back of the plane, and I'm in a middle seat. And our tray tables are still down. We still had food out. And I'm just dozing off. I'm half asleep. And all of a sudden, over the PA system, what do you call that? I guess in you call it intercom. The, the intercom. Over the intercom, the pilot, I can't understand what he says, but he... <laughs> and I'm half asleep. And the woman next to me says, what did he just say? So I proceed to tell her what I heard him say. I turned to her and I said, 
He said, put your head between your legs. We're going down. Because for whatever reason, I swore that's what he said. (laughs) The flight attendants come around. They start putting the tray tables up and blah, 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 blah. It was chaos for a couple seconds because the plane was going down in a pretty steep decline. Turns out we were circling Circling. the airport and they said, all right, come in right now. And then they called it off. So we started going down quickly. What he had said was something about circling and we're making a quick descent. I don't know why I heard that, but the woman next to me was furious. I think she thought I played some type of prank on her. And I didn't. It's just what I heard. Did she start to cry? Put your head between your knees. We're going down. So anyway, I might have been the worst passenger ever. Read a fun fact recently. But I I didn't toot. (laughs) That's good. At least you didn't do that. Because that's what I heard. It's not like I was making it up. I was probably still half asleep. You're a newsman. Well, I wasn't very much of a newsman back then. Confirm the quote before you repeat it to your fellow passenger. I recently read uh, the reason airline pilots all talk in that kind of southern drawl. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we're at 10,000 feet. We're going to be coming into Logan Airport. Is because they're all, from the very beginning, they were all imitating Chuck Yeager. Wow. Really? That was how he spoke. And I, when Tom Wolfe died, I decided to reread The Right Stuff. Yeah. And there's this whole chapter about every airline pilot then styled themselves after him and his Oklahoma drawl. Isn't that that does work, though. It imagine... gives people a soothing sense yeah. that you are in control. That Sully Sullenberger kind of voice. Wow. Yeah, because imagine if the pilot got on there was like, dude, yeah. we're at 30,000 yeah. feet. <laughs> Things are going to be wicked awesome this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, what is <laughs> happening? Put your head what? between your knees. We're going down. <laughs> Kid, it's going to be wicked turbulent. <laughs> Well, this has been fun. Yeah, I think... And I love this. Uh, Jonathan asks two questions. Is this too dumb for a podcast? I think we've proven it isn't. Nothing Everyone. is too dumb for a podcast. That's true. That's very... That especially this has podcast. been proven by the podcast Especially um, Alston's number one podcast. His other rule he's written here is Liam cannot weigh in when he gets oh, back. There's no stop. Oh, he'll be on to something else. <laughs> no, he'll explode if he, if he'll he be tries to, to keep it else. In. We'll hear what happened to him when he reclined. No, we won't. <laughs> In the meantime, uh, if you think we missed something horrendous about air travel, yeah. why not go onto our Twitter feed, at Studio BZ Pod, mm-hmm. send us a message, and someone will respond, if, if not all of us. Or you can reach me on Twitter, at Keller at Large is my handle. Mm-hmm. I'm at Paula Eben WBZ. I'm at David Wade. David, it's been great to have you. Yeah, I'd like to fun. come on more often, you Just know, but I've been told that I need to bring content with me, and sometimes I'm too busy for content. content. What was but that? you can drop in anytime you want. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. And but you've got the stature to Bigfoot Liam out true. of the chair, too. Oh, you can come walk in. in here These are rolling chairs. Just roll the want. chair right out. It's true. Absolutely. Um, and uh, by all means, give us a rating, a review. We yeah. thrive on that. Tell a friend. Subscribe it, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, tell your friends. Share. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's it for this week. And we, David knows how we sign off. Yeah. Every week we sign off and in a, by paying homage to the illustrious history of our call letters here. But an old line that I guess it was, was it uh, Jerry Williams used to say every night? Or where they yeah. used to say every night at the end of the show, we'll, we'll be seeing you. You want to try us? Uh, I was going to have my own. Which oh, go ahead. I was going to say, from Alston's number one podcast, this message to Alston's number two podcast, <laughs> suck it. <laughs>
How's that I like one? it. I kind of like it. It's so, something it's that Jack Williams used to do so in the Jack day. Williams it's a little confrontational, <laughs> but uh, let's go with it. <laughs> we'll be seeing you. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Oh, great.